Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ryan Driscoll-Tate, and our guest today is Doug Shefflin. He's an assistant teaching professor at Colorado State University in Fort Collins and the author of Legacies of Dust, a book about land use and labor on the Colorado Plains. The book's out now through the University of Nebraska. Doug Shefflin, great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm happy to be here. So, Doug, before we begin, why don't you just take a few minutes to tell listeners a little bit about yourself uh, and how you became a historian? Um, wow, that's a good lead-in. Um, kind of a long story, I suppose, as it is for all of us. I had a really good history teacher in high school, actually, and I really enjoyed his class, and I really enjoyed him as a person, and it just kind of stuck with me so that when I when I got to college, I... Um, I flailed for a bit, not knowing exactly what I wanted to do or, or what I wanted to be when I grew up, you know, and um, started taking history courses. And it, it just stuck with me, um, and I couldn't get rid of it. And I realized at the time that this was something that I wanted to think about doing more seriously. And so I ended up majoring um, and getting a, a BA in history um, with a focus on American environmental history, actually not knowing what I was going to do with it, but feeling really good about what I had learned and what I had taken out of the program. I took a couple of years to go play outside. I, um, I grew up in Wisconsin for the most part and went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And then after I graduated, I moved to Portland, Oregon for several years. I ran the kitchen of a brew pub and I hiked and I camped and I fished and I just did whatever I wanted to do. Realized that I had this draw back to history that, that my time in a brew pub wasn't actually satisfying. So thought seriously about grad school and ended up applying for and getting into CU Boulder. Um, and my PhD came out of there 2012, 2013. And since then, I've been at Colorado State University. We moved up to Fort Collins. Uh, my wife and I have two kids. We moved up to Fort Collins um, four and a half years ago um, and really enjoy it. It's a nice community, uh, a big enough town, close enough to Denver, close enough to an airport, but very vibrant, um, and it's been a good several years. So it's it's kind of a weird process for me. My family was from Colorado. I was born in Denver. Um, my parents left in the late 70s when it was, according to them, becoming too crowded. 
<laughs> and then we've we've all since come back. And so it was kind of a natural thing for me to look at CU for grad school. And it, it turned out I entered as a, a master's candidate and ended with my PhD and uh, been doing this ever since. So it's it's been an interesting run. Yeah, it's a homecoming of sorts. Um, so what about the legacies of dust? What was your inspiration behind the book? Um, and how did you come to write it? Well, it's it, it kind of comes back to how I got into the profession, really. Um, when I was an undergrad, I took a, an environmental history course with Bill Cronin. And one of the books he had us read was Donald Worcester's The Dust Bowl. And I think more than almost anything else I'd ever read that stuck with me. Um, and at the time, of course, I didn't really see the future to the extent that it was going to influence me as much as it did with professional development, but I knew I liked it. I knew I was um, kind of appalled at how little I knew about it. Um, and I realized that the stuff that I did get out of the book didn't really explain too much to me about Colorado. And so in thinking about going back to graduate school and, and thinking about studying at CU and, and thinking very seriously about how to combine Western and environmental history, it seemed to make complete sense to me. And in looking at some of the literature and, and trying to deal with historiography, even when I was putting together a prospectus, I, I realized that even though so many powerful and, and really remarkable books had been written, articles had been written on this topic, none of them really addressed the issue in Colorado. And I, I think it's easy to overlook. Um, you know, for so many people, when they think of Colorado, they think of the Rockies, they think of skiing, they think of uh, Denver, and, and they kind of forget that a huge chunk of the state is actually uh, Great Plains. And so it was easy, I think, to overlook that Colorado actually went through some of the more significant and um, really destructive years of the Dust Bowl, particularly in the southeastern corner of the state. And so when I started kind of thinking that I wanted to do environmental, that Worcester's book had always stuck with me. And then I in a kind of a related vein, I wanted to look also at the New Deal. It just kind of came together. And so it, it seemed to be it seemed to me that there was a hole in the literature. It seemed to me that this was a story that I felt connected to um, as somebody who had fondly come back here as a kid to visit family and who had moved here and took very seriously my own family history in the state. So it, it kind of allowed me an opportunity to study what I wanted to in a way that I wanted to study it. And it just kind of uh, really flowed fairly well in that way. Yeah, that's great. So could you tell us a little bit about Southeastern Colorado even today? As you just mentioned, it gets overlooked in popular imagination about what is Colorado. Well, without being too cynical, it's desolate. Um, it is very much kind of high Western plains. Part of what I wanted to do in the book is to explain what it looks like now without being so presentist. Um, but realistically, what I, what I found in looking back at it is that this was a place that for all intents and purposes, seemed like opportunity for people until they got there. Um, and it kind of falls into that category of Western High Plains that people believe that they could get a fresh start. Um, the Homestead Act obviously facilitated some of that idea. And opportunistically, a lot of folks came out to these places thinking that they could do what they had done previously uh, or just pick up farming and lands that, despite the fact they had no idea what they were doing, that they would be successful in doing it. And in that respect, it follows kind of a traditional pattern of the Western Great Plains. Um, but this is this is a tough place to make a living. It's a tough place to live. Uh, it's it's arid. It's a hot sun. It's you know what most people would tell you is that it's windy all the time. Um, it's tough to grow much of anything well. It seems like for most folks down there who stay there, they've stayed there out of almost obligation. Uh, the population has declined since World War II. 
stays, uh, it has stayed pretty uh, isolating, uh, pretty desolate in spots. And the people who live down there understand kind of the challenges that they face in, in many ways. Um, the flip side is, of course, that it's, it's also a beautiful country and that the communities down there, even in spite of the fact that they've been shrinking over the last several decades, they are still vibrant. They are still trying to maintain. They are still trying to, you know, in a very resilient way, make a living and, and cut out a life in this rather inhospitable place. And so you, you get some of this sense of perseverance as much as you get a sense of almost what are you doing down here? Um, and that, in a very basic way, drove me to think about this particular place as a place. How did people make sense of it? How did they adapt to these conditions? Did they adapt to these conditions? What does drought mean in this place? Um, and so what I tried to do, and, and part of part of why Worcester's book, I think, was such an influence, was that I, I took this county-based idea and, and compared and contrast two places to try and make sense of how different people even in this region, we're able to respond to or how they did respond to uh, depression and drought in different ways and try to tell that story um, with a longer time frame than anybody else had ever really done. And that was kind of my catch. Absolutely. And, and Donald Worcester's book, The Dust Bowl, is so iconic in environmental history. But for people who might not be familiar with it, would you talk a little bit about the impact of the disaster, especially in southeastern Colorado, which is a story until this book that's largely unknown, right? It's, you know, it it's hard um, and it's hard to do justice to it. And in fact, when I teach in American environmental history, I also teach a course on the interwar period and I spend a significant amount of time talking about the Dust Bowl. And it's still understood to be a, a regional event in some ways. So if I have students who are from Kansas or Nebraska, they know it. If I have students from California or Illinois or uh, Pennsylvania, they have no idea what I'm talking about. So, you know, to your point, a lot of folks, I think, don't really understand the severity. Um, there had been droughts in the Great Plains, on the Great Plains, um, you know, cyclical droughts for the period of, of white settlement in those regions. But this one seemed to be more significant than the previous iterations. It sets in, um, unfortunately for the folks who survived it, it sets in during uh, the Great Depression, which made it even more significant and more um, I think destructive in some ways. When they um, when they first started to identify the presence of drought in 1930 and 1931, it seemed to many people that this was just going to be a, a small cycle, that they had survived um, other droughts, that they had survived other dust storms, and that this was going to be a big deal. But unfortunately for them, this is one that just kept going on and on and on and on. So the drought that kicks in in 3031 in southeastern Colorado lasts throughout the 1930s. And it starts to really rain again in 39 and 40. But by that point, um, the landscape itself had changed pretty dramatically. What the Dust Bowl does in a way that previous droughts hadn't done, I think, is to expose the fragility of that environment. And it, it worked in the, the favor of the people who were able to sustain themselves during the 1930s that Roosevelt's New Deal provided opportunities for them to survive and sustain themselves. But even with that federal largesse, even with help from the state, um, Thousands of people, uh, in fact, Eastern Colorado generally, we're talking tens of thousands of people could not sustain themselves because of this tremendous dust storm. And it would be several 10, 12, 15 dust storms a year where your soil would end up in your neighbor's lot. Uh, your soil would end up in Nebraska or Kansas or Illinois or D.C. 
Um, and I, I show my students part of documentaries from that period to expose them to what these pictures look like. Because to explain to them that 350 million tons of topsoil, topsoil just, just picked up by the wind and, and disappeared, they, they can't make sense of it. They can't realize that you know some of these worst storms would deposit uh, dust and sediment in Chicago and, and D.C. and off the Atlantic coast. And so part of what I, I try to do in the book, except not as successfully as some of my predecessors, is to explain the impact of these storms and these drought years on the people who try to survive them. And one of the things you do great in the book is show that it's not just about a place and a disaster, but about long-term legacies. You write at one point, quote, nothing will ever be the same, unquote. Could you talk a little more about how it transformed the place and the agricultural economy and even the people? Yeah. Um, the way that I tried to organize the book was around three different environmental contexts. And so I, I think most familiarly, when we think about the Dust Bowl, we think about the soil. We think about the farmers. And in southeastern Colorado, this is mostly folks in Baca County who are doing dryland farming. I also wanted to look at the way that the Dust Bowl affected irrigating farmers. During the 1930s and 40s, these are folks who principally grew alfalfa or sugar beets. And the last environmental context that I really wanted to expose was that of, of labor, of farm labor especially. The work that had been done when I started this project, and, and to your point, had been mostly about the 1930s. And when they talked at all about the 1940s, it was almost dismissively about, well, and then World War II came and everything changed and went back to normal. And, and the efforts of the 1930s were both temporary and inconsequential. So part of what I wanted to do was to, to not really accept that. Um, my dissertation dealt with the period from about the mid-1920s to 1945. And the book, to your point, is, is much larger in terms of its time frame. Because I, I, don't, I don't believe that you can understand the impact of what many people argue is the worst environmental disaster in American history without thinking about this decades down the line. So... In terms of long-term consequences, we're talking about a huge level of outmigration. Um, most familiar, familiarly, we talk about the Okies, right? Folks who couldn't sustain themselves as farmers um, in, in places like southeastern Colorado who quite literally just leave. They go to Denver, they go to Texas, they go to California, they're just gone. So in terms of demographic shift, this is significant. What else I deal with in the book also uh, kind of uh, wrestles with soil conservation, and that's where the land element comes in. What most people have argued about the 30s and about reaction to the Dust Bowl is that soil conservation is kind of a temporary fix. It's a Band-Aid. As soon as farmers have economic motivation to produce again, this, the conservation techniques and methods, subsidies, encouragement that they had received in the depth of the Dust Bowl kind of goes by the wayside. And what I found very basically in thinking about conservation is that that isn't true. By extending my time frame to include not only the 1930s, but also um, the 1950s, when we have another significant drought hit the area, folks who had survived the 1930s approached the drought of the 1950s in a much more stable way. They kind of remembered what they had done in the 1930s. They had developed relationships with people on the state and federal level who could help guide them through this second significant drought cycle. Farmers who had conserved in the 1930s, even if they had taken a break during part of the 1940s, which I, I think is kind of a gray area, remember the importance of conserving their soil in, 19, in the late 1940s and early 1950s and, and have since maintained a pretty significant soil conservation regime in that part of the state. The irrigators learned in the 1930s that they wanted more water, which isn't surprising to us. But in the course of the Dust Bowl, they understood that they could work on the state and federal level. They could lobby for funding. They could lobby 
for engineering projects they could lobby for developing, uh, even to the point of Trans Mountain diversion projects to give them more water along the Arkansas River. So their adaptation was utilizing the government in ways that they never had before. For farm laborers, um, many of these folks who couldn't find jobs in the 1930s because farmers couldn't produce, because farmers wouldn't hire out like they had before, they adapt. Folks who had been migrant workers from nearby states realized that they're no longer very welcome in Colorado and they stopped coming in. And so everything that had seemed to be normalized in 1930, whether you're dry land or irrigated, whether you're a farm owner or a farm laborer, those worlds shift. And by the early 1950s and more specifically the late 50s and early 1960s, we're talking about a, a much smaller population of people we're talking about farm sizes that have, have grown significantly in acreage, even while they've decreased in numbers. We're talking about farmers who have grown accustomed to relating to state and federal bureaucracies, state and federal agencies. They have become reliant on groups specifically like the Colorado Cooperative Extension Service and the county agents who work in those counties. They have, in many ways, developed a modernized apparatus with which they can deal with these issues of drought and depression. Um, and because they were forced to adapt in the 1930s, they learned lessons that they would employ in the 1950s and beyond. As you can probably imagine, it's, it's not as though drought doesn't continue to hit that area. But when it does, many of these folks have a safety net in place that their, uh, their fathers and mothers and aunts and uncles and the folks before them in those areas had helped develop. And so that's, that's really the significant change for me is that when you talk about land use, when you talk about the development of a, a modern state, you talk about the development of the ways in which the agriculture, agricultural econ economy functions, um, the relationship that farmers have with each other as well as with state agents. Everything seems to change in the 1930s, and I don't think at least you can understand those changes unless you draw out your timeline. Yeah, well, let's dive into that for a little bit. You talk about changing relationships in the book between farmers and the state. It's one of the central themes. And you open the book with these county agents, these sort of middling bureaucrats out in southeast Colorado. How did the relationships with farmers change over time to these bureaucratic entities as a result of the Dust Bowl? It, it's funny how this developed in my own mind. Um, I think, like many folks, when we get into projects, um, you never know where you're going to end up. And I was actually working on this uh, as a prospectus and, and early in the dissertation process without really understanding what the Agricultural Extension Service did. And I came up, at the time I was living in Boulder, and I came up to the CSU archives where most of um, the agricultural archives for the state uh, are held. And I ended up talking with some helpful folks up here who helped me understand that if I wanted to actually produce something that was based on a county-by-county county analysis, then I had to get down to a point where I could understand what the county agents were. Um, and once I realized that that was a, a good vehicle that, that I could use to understand this transformation, um, that it in many ways was going to end up being my best access to farmers, um, farm groups, farm organizations, individuals living in these towns, um, then I really embraced it. But it took me a, a little while at least to realize how consequential it was going to be for my research. In 1914, this Smith-Lever Act creates the county agents service. It's, it creates this national cooperative extension agency model that many states, including Colorado, start to adopt. The problem in, in places like Colorado is that for the most part, this federal policy didn't translate very well. What I mean to say is that the idea of cooperative extension was using um, experts and 
during most of the, the late teens and 20s, these were folks who were experts in marketing, for example, and pushing co-ops. There was an element of, of home economics. There were uh, certainly um, folks who gravitated towards agronomy. Um, and the county agents, as, as part of this policy, as part of this process, were folks who were supposed to be trained, experts in their fields, who would then go to counties across the state and work as advisors. The problem with the policy and, and with the extension service and these county agents specifically was that during the course of the 1920s, this was federal policy that wasn't always embraced by the state and certainly wasn't very often embraced by the individuals who were living in these counties, primarily because these county agents had salaries that the folks living in those counties were supposedly responsible to pay. So what I found in looking at these county agents and specifically in, in Prowers and, and Baca County that I look at, these agents were not welcome. Um, if you were to scan the newspapers uh, from these periods and, and to read these county agent narrative reports, they'll explain pretty clearly that there is significant resistance among folks living in these communities because they didn't want to play, pay the salary. They believe that many of these agents were outsiders who didn't understand the conditions on the ground in places like Lamar or Springfield. And so there was almost a, an animosity that had already developed and realistically, for, for many of these people, they didn't think that the agents offered anything of consequence, and they didn't feel like, especially after 29 when the Depression starts to sink in, that they needed to spend some of their hard-earned money employing people that they didn't really believe to be part of the community. What really changed this was in 1932, the election of Franklin Roosevelt. One of the things that they do early on in the New Deal is to extend federal funding to pay the extension service. And then they adopt this policy whereby they pay the county agent's salary. So once it doesn't become responsibility of the counties and the people in those counties to pay the agent's salaries, you can imagine that many people are more amenable to the idea of these outsiders coming in to help. So on, on one hand, it's a financial decision. Folks living in these places were more willing to address them, were willing to engage them, were willing to listen to them because they realized at this point that it's not coming out of their own pockets. What I think was more significant, though, is that the New Deal policies, and regardless of where you want to look, you can look at the AAA, um, you could look at the CCC, you could look at the Works Progress, I mean, any of these alphabet agencies. What, what was most, I, I think, remarkable to me in looking at these agents is that these, as you call them middling bureaucrats, you're right on some level, but they weren't taken to be bureaucrats in most of these counties because they held the purse strings. So rather than feeling like they were disconnected people sitting behind a desk, these were folks who would go to county meetings, they would go to community organizations, they would glad hand and go door to door, they would basically make house calls, they would run demonstration farms. And what became most important in kind of facilitating a relationship between the agents and the people in these counties is that these agents were responsible for running federal programs in given counties. And so if you lived in Prowers County and you wanted to have the government buy up some of your cattle, the agent had to come to your ranch to see what cattle could be bought up, what money you'd be able to receive, and then the agent himself would, at this point, facilitate that sale and the purchase. And so you you basically benefited from befriending the agent and relying on the agent because, quite realistically, for many of these folks, they don't survive without that federal spending. And so what, what happens, and, and what I found to be the case in Baca and Prowers, is that as these agents are becoming a much more integral part of the local economy by literally deciding who gets money and who doesn't, 
locals start to embrace them in ways that they never had before. Um, and I, I don't mean to say that in a cynical way. It makes complete sense to me. Um, if you are beholden to this person and you start to realize that this person is working in your best interest, trying to capitalize on this federal money to ensure that you can stay on your farm doing what you want to do, then you're going to embrace that person and engage that person in ways that you never did before. So the resistance I saw in the late 20s and early 1930s effectively um, just disappears by 33 and 34 and 35 when it becomes clear that these agents are playing an absolutely critical role in making sure that people in those two counties are able to survive the worst years of the Depression and the, the drought. Yeah. And at one point, though, you're talking about changes in land use. A phrase that you used that really stuck out to me was you call it an anti-homestead act. What did you mean by that in terms of long-term impact? Well, it was not a very creative name, <laughs> but uh, what I was trying to get at is that one of the things that was that stood out to me over the course of the 1930s, and particularly in, in the, latter, uh, the latter half of that decade when the New Deal starts to shift a little bit from trying to um, provide federal financial assistance to trying to reform the agricultural economy, is that many folks um, within federal agencies, M.L. Wilson, L.C. Um, Gray, and others started to think about this process by which poor people were responsible for poor land. Um, and I, I think that there's a point, and this had been building for a while, and some folks have argued that it becomes more apparent in different parts of the country early on. In Colorado, where I've been where I've been studying and, and what I write about is is this area that that didn't really have to come to terms with the idea that folks are farming in places where they shouldn't be farming. The um, sensitivities as to submarginal land really becomes a part of 1930s agricultural policy in a way that it had never really been part of policy before. And so, in my opinion, at least, this, this push from federal agencies, this push from the Colorado Cooperative Extension Service, this push from county agents, a lot of it was predicated on the idea that not everybody who's farming in these submarginal places should be farming in those places. Whereas the Homestead Act, depending on your reading of it, and uh, some folks are starting to write new histories of, of the Homestead Act itself, which I think is a worthwhile endeavor. What many people, I think, associate with the Homestead Act is this idea that you could effectively move anywhere you want to, take your 160 acres and, and make something of it and of yourself. Except I think most of us who have studied this, particularly in the Plains and the American West, it's, it, we realize that it's a much more complicated story. And even though the federal government tries over and over again to adapt, once it realizes that 160 acres in, in arid southeastern Colorado isn't the same thing as it is in Iowa or Wisconsin, and they develop policies, you know, Desert Land Act, the Timber Act, even the Enlarged Homestead Act. They, they never really come to terms with the fact that even as they're trying to augment what people can receive, they're not dealing with the fundamental problem of whether this is land that should be farmed in the first place. And so part of what I, part of what I try to lump together under this umbrella anti-homestead act is this realization that people are farming in places where they shouldn't be farming. And it's in some ways an indirect consequence of these policies that a lot of folks who would otherwise stay in these places and farm on these properties end up leaving. Some of them by way of things like the resettlement administration. Some of them picking up stakes and, and leaving because they don't feel like they have a choice. And, and many of the federal and state policies that are developed over the course of the late 1930s 
are designed to quite literally reward the people who can sustain themselves. And the 160-acre homestead ideal that had so long dictated agricultural policy in these places no longer seemed feasible to them. And, and quite frankly, while many of us might lament the, the loss of this sense of a family farm, it's, it's, in my opinion at least, starting to become much, much more significant during the 1930s when policymakers start to understand in their own minds that, that if, you, if you want to take 160 acres in these places where it's hard to make a living on 160 acres, then the likelihood is that you are going to become dependent on the state. The likelihood is that you are going to become dependent on federal financing. And realistically, it's probably a situation in which another line of work, living somewhere else, moving to Denver and taking a job or California to find something else might be a worthwhile thing for you to do. So to alleviate population pressure, to alleviate farming on submarginal land, I don't think that the New Deal did as much as it could have to help folks who were kind of middling farmers in the first place as a way to try and conserve these lands that shouldn't be farmed and as a way to try and sustain the people who they thought could actually survive drought and depression better than somebody living on 160 acres could. So when they start to push this big farm, big farmer, big acreage plan, it's, you know, again, I think many of us resent the fact that it, it starts to develop as policy during this period. But realistically, for a lot of farmers, it was the only way they could sur survive is to have farms large enough to sustain them. And one of the key roles in that too, which is often missing in popular stories of the Dust Bowl, but what you get into is, is that it's not just about land, but it's also about water and access to water. Could you talk about the long-term impact of the Dust Bowl and its influence on water in the West? Yeah, sure. Um, it, it, it makes it, – it's absolutely clear to me, um, and I'm sure it is to, to most folks. If you farm with irrigation um, and you have access to the Arkansas River – when drought hits, you are going to wonder where more water might come from. For many of the folks who were irrigated farmers, particularly in Prowers County along the Arkansas River, their reaction to the Dust Bowl was trying to search out ways to access more water. And again, that makes complete sense to me. Um, what, they, what they realize early on, and, and in fact, they start pushing for federal funding for a reservoir project along the Arkansas as early as 1933, what they start to realize early on is that this is a period where the New Deal has opened up new opportunities. And what they hope to accomplish, and when I say they, it's primarily irrigated farmers in Prowers County living in Lamar and elsewhere. What they start to understand is that if the New Deal is going to offer them opportunities for assistance, whether it's, it's full-on financing or expertise, or, or some kind of combination of local, state, and federal financing, it seemed to be a prime opportunity and a prime time for them to really capitalize on that largesse. So starting in 1933, where, whereas dry land farmers would tend to gravitate more towards soil conservation to address soil erosion, irrigated farmers thought about more water. And so they started in 1933 through the Arkansas Basin Committee uh, lobbying the federal government and the state government to get money to build a reservoir along the Arkansas River that would then hold water from the river and allow them to be able to distribute water to folks with water rights on a much more steady and stable way. When they realize, and it takes them several years, when they realize this in 1934 and 35 and 36 that they have a lot of, of issues to iron out, 
they do their best to try and take care of and address concerns on the state and, and federal level. They want water. They know that the Arkansas has a tendency to dry up during dry years. They know for the most part that, that as you know, as is the case with many rivers throughout the West, the Arkansas was already over allocated with water rights and junior rights anyway. So they were living in a kind of inconsistent, almost a, 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 a in this nebulous relationship where they couldn't define their own water rights. They couldn't figure out how they wanted more water. They knew that they could come up with plans to, to contain water in a reservoir, but they were competing with each other. They were competing with the front range. They were competing with folks downriver in Kansas and elsewhere who really took this as a slight against their own water rights. And so it took them a couple of years to find champions in the Senate and champions in the House. Finally, in 1939, um, they received government clearance and financing for what would become the John Martin Dam and Reservoir. So in the 1930s, they identified the crisis of not having enough water. They realized that increasing their engagement with federal policy, federal bureaucrats, federal agencies, actively lobbying in their own, on their own behalf could produce something like this. They, they learned from it. So when drought hits in the 1950s, they realized that, well, it worked the first time, we can do it again. And they set up the same kinds of organizations. They, they construct the same kinds of associations. They rely on old friends in Congress and in the Senate. They rely on folks in Denver and the state capitol. They go to the federal level, and again, they ask for more water. And in this case, they get the Frying Pan Arkansas Project, which is a transmountain diversion project that brings more water down to the Arkansas basis. It helps feed the development of Pueblo. It helps provide more water to the farmers along the river. And so in, in that respect, what they learn in the 1930s is that the federal government will be willing to fund these kinds of projects if you can sell it. And in the 1930s, they sold it as a, a wise-use, multi-use project that seemed to jive really well with other dam projects throughout the West. In the 1950s, they brought up the idea of urban renewal and urban growth in Pueblo and the importance of the Front Range in terms of national defense. And they brought up their own contribution in terms of farming along the Arkansas. And, and they were able to convince the federal government again to fund this gigantic project. And so what, what they learned during those periods was that if they could adapt by finding more water and if they could convince these, these federal agencies and, and federal experts that the water would help them, then they would be able to follow through with it. And I think in, in a very basic way, what strikes me about that is that when we think about this huge period of dam building during the New Deal, whether it's the TVA or the, the development of the Columbia Valley, what, what struck me really was that this is a small group of people who realized that they could strike while the iron was hot. And they were able to succeed in, in achieving their goal, which was finding water when water didn't seem to exist in a way that they hoped it would. And it was, you know, very realistically for them, I think, um, a temporary solution because you, you can't rely on a, a river to be stable and flow consistently. But again, in the 1950s, when they realized there was another crisis, they, they did the same thing they had done and they achieved it again. So it's it's kind of a, a weird turn of events that what they learned from the Dust Bowl was that they had to rely on the federal government in ways that they didn't really like, but that they knew might be productive. Relationship pretty dramatically. The other relationship that changes a great deal over the book is that you say it's not just about how people work the land, but also who is working the land. Could you tell us a little more about the changing labor structures and regimes that are going on in southeastern Colorado as a result of the Dust Bowl? Yeah, sure. Um, 
it's it's something that I I was particularly sensitive to. Um, and obviously, you know, the the folks who had written about the Dust Bowl um, had done so much and accomplished so much that I had kind of a hard time situating myself. I, I knew that it was something that I wanted to study, and I knew that they hadn't read much about Colorado. But in thinking more about it, I realized that the vast majority of people who had written about the Dust Bowl had written about the landowners, um, the farmers, and they hadn't really ever addressed issues like tenancy. Um, they hadn't ever really addressed the people who were working on these farms as, as paid agricultural laborers. And so part of what I wanted to do in, in thinking about the 1930s is to think about it as this this moment of transition. And again, I'll bring this back to the county agents. In the 19-teens and 1920s, um, in places like southeastern Colorado, companies, particularly sugar beet companies, would effectively set up their own hiring regimes. So if um, a given sugar company needed workers for its contracted sugar growers, they would go into Texas, they would go into New Mexico, they would go into other parts of Colorado, they would recruit labor, and they'd bring laborers in as temporary migrant workers who would work the sugar beet season, and then they'd go home, and then the next year they'd start that cycle all over again. In the 1920s, the company started to realize that it would be in their best interest to keep these workers around throughout the year. It would mean a more reliable access to a labor pool. It would mean more uh, experienced workers. And so they start setting up uh, small communities. They start advertising schools and community organizations, housing, other opportunities for folks to um, really develop a life in southeastern Colorado. And so that was their enticement. And so what had been very much a, a migratory labor stream starts to become more sedentary in the end of the 1920s. When the drought hits and when the depression hits in the 1930s, the folks who had been coming in either as temporary employees or even living in these communities year-round were no longer as welcome as they had been. Um, irrigated farmers couldn't grow what they once had. Uh, Dryland farmers certainly couldn't grow what they once had. And so there was so little demand for outside labor that by and large, people who had been coming to southeastern Colorado as migratory workers for decades, in some cases, no longer found themselves with opportunities. Um, it's also the case that there's pretty significant resistance within Colorado to folks coming from outside the state and taking jobs from Coloradoans. So in, in 1936, the, the governor of Colorado actually shuts down the border uh, to New Mexico, uh, shuts down the border to Oklahoma. He basically tries to shut down the southern border entirely to ensure that migrant workers can't come into the state of Colorado and folks who live in this state should have first access to those agricultural jobs. And so because of that pressure, because of um, drought, because of depression, the system that had really relied on migratory workers basically just disappears. And I mentioned that the extension service and the county agents, and I, I part of how I use them in this book is to explain this labor story um, in the context of World War II. When when World War II hits, it had started raining again, and and the conditions for growing. Uh, commodities in southeastern Colorado were, were perfect, except the folks who needed workers had either by choice or by consequence um, of the depression and drought ended up not having access to those workers. And so in this case, labor as a context fits this argument of locals taking advantage of federal opportunities. They go to the federal government, they go to the state extension service, they use their county agents, and they start asking for workers. And the extension service and the federal government follows through. 
They start the Bracero program in 42 and 43, whereby they effectively import workers from both Mexico and Jamaica. They establish POW camps in Trinidad. They establish the Amache internment camp um, in Powers County, where um, upwards of nine or 10,000 uh, Japanese and Japanese Americans are interned and effectively um, work out of that camp uh, in surrounding farms and on surrounding acreage. And so the federal government effectively sets up this program by which they're drawing from across the Americas, really, and bringing workers into southeastern Colorado. The county extension service and the county agents are the folks who do the, the placement of these employees. Um, and so when, when you're in need in 42 or 43 um, of 10 or 15 or 25 or 30 workers, and you can no longer go to these um, sugar companies that had contracted workers for you, you instead go to the county agent's office and request workers, and the agent finds some way to bring workers to your farm to do what you need them to do. You organize around a wage, you agree on a set of conditions, and the government effectively makes these workers available. So during this crisis of World War II, when people who were previously willing to work on these farms no longer either wanted to because they had taken defense jobs in places like Denver, were no longer able to because they had been shut out of Colorado, folks who were looking for workers looked now to the Extension Service and to the federal government to provide them. And in some ways, that was a significant change from what had come before. It was much more kind of top-down. It was much more bureaucratic. It was, um, in, in, some, in some cases, much more uh, impersonal um, and much more directed, if you will. Um, and so what had been kind of an agreed-upon relationship between worker and employee had become something that was much more complicated because of the presence of the federal government. And that, that system carries over into the post-war period. By the late 1940s and 1950s, the government is still providing opportunities for workers to work on farms where farmers need workers. And it's, it's no longer farmers making relationships. It's, in many cases, governments setting up, Colorado specifically setting up communities for migrant workers and setting up schools and setting up social programs and setting up healthcare opportunities and, and really facilitating the development of this labor pool to make sure that farmers had the kinds of workers that they wanted when they wanted them. And it's a pretty dramatic shift in the course of 20 or 30 years. Yeah, it's one of the most surprising, fascinating parts of the book as a reader. Uh, part of it is the reason you mentioned that this existing narrative about the Dust Bowl that we get accustomed to. And so the way you integrated changing labor structures is fascinating. Uh, I also wanted to ask you, you know, what was the most surprising part for you to write? Um, you talked a little bit about the county agents as becoming protagonists that you didn't initially see them as. What made you go, wow, uh, as a researcher? Yeah, you know, the, the county agents, I, I think, were certainly the most significant surprise. Um, but I, I, in a broader way, what I, what I came to realize in using the county agents was that when I started thinking about the New Deal, when I started studying it, um, it was always just huge government. It was always top-down. It was always Franklin Roosevelt and his brains trust, and it was always these folks far away from local problems who were devising solutions and then implementing them. And one of the nice things for me in, in terms of using a microhistory, a, a county-level history like this and, and conducting research on a county-by-county -county basis is that you start to realize that there is there is a significant difference between federal policy as, as we read about in textbooks and as we came to understand with the acronyms and all of these federal programs and Roosevelt 
in the ways in which those policies are actually executed on the ground. And it's, it's, I think, easy for a lot of us to assume that the creation of policy and the execution of policy are different things. But seeing that play out over time was, was really remarkable to me in many ways. Um, I came to understand that, that all of this very meta stuff that, that we learned when, you know, when I learned when I was an undergrad or even in high school, that I took for granted as always working because it was just that way, it, it isn't that simple. Um, and what I try to do in the book is to explain that when we can celebrate or um, denigrate New Deal change and policy because some of it worked and some of it didn't, a lot of that is, is going to work or not or did work or not based on how local peoples embraced it. If they believed in it, if they could be sold, if they could see their own self-interest in it, then they were much more likely to embrace it, to engage it, to execute it. Um, and in that respect, it, it was a remarkable shift for me because I, I took it away from the federal level and realized that policies don't exist like that. It, it's not as though you write up this legislation and then poof, it, it gets enforced. And I, of course, I think we all realize that on a theoretical level. But for me, what, what was really remarkable is the way in which local peoples, residents in these two southeastern Colorado counties, came to make sense of federal policy and, and apply them in their own ways. Um, the folks who lobbied for water is one example. Another example that, that comes to mind is the creation of what were called soil conservation districts. So when, when we tend to think of soil conservation in the 1930s, I think many people think of Hugh Hammond Bennett and the Soil Conservation Service. Well, that that's fine. Um, and of course, they play a valuable role in, in trying to push soil conservation across the Great Plains and across the United States. But what I found in looking at southeastern Colorado was that there was, in fact, a lot of condemnation of the SCS, of Bennett, of federal bureaucrats for pushing soil conservation in ways that local people didn't agree with. And in 1937, Colorado adopts the Colorado Soil Conservation District Act, which allows residents in particular counties to vote. They voluntarily opt into soil conservation districts. Once they have these districts created, they can then determine what will fly within those places. And what I mean to say is that in, in a place like Baca County, where they're forming soil conservation districts by 38, 39, and into World War II, we're talking about a hundred, couple hundred thousand acres worth of this very vulnerable land now being protected by people farming those very same acres. They used federal monies. They used federal expertise. They had access to workers, to machinery. They had access to experts who could consult um, on a given problem, on a given farm. They had folks that they could turn to for advice. But when it came to actually executing policy or policing each other, they did all of that individually and independently. So folks in Baca County, for example, when they realized that there were several owners folks who lived within the district boundaries who were not taking care of their lands, they actually brought cases against individual owners and tried to fine them, penalize them for not actually conserving their soil. So for me, when I, when I read the record of this, what was a, effectively a case that was adjudicated, we're talking about farmers on the ground who aren't buying into what Hugh Hammond Bennett is selling, but they are certainly taking responsibility for what they're doing and how they're doing it. And for me, the way that the New Deal became private, the way that the New Deal was able to affect a 
private land rights and private property rights the way that it did through these soil conservation districts was a whole new wrinkle to a story that I had taken for granted for far too long. Yeah, I'd point out that you called this a microhistory just now, and I almost forgot that it really is just about those two counties. But you do a great job of integrating the personal, local, state, and national stories into one. So it's place-based, but there's this national story throughout. Um, you know, Doug, we've taken up a lot of your time, but I want to ask you before we go uh, what you're working on next. Thank you very much. I really, I really appreciate your questions and having a chance to talk with you about it. Um, as a first book, I, I, I'm very happy that you saw some of those connections because I wasn't sure how well I sold them. <laughs> um, and it, it kind of leaves me at a, at a weird place now thinking about a second project. Um, I spent a couple of years working on uh, a history of Scotts Bluff National Monument in, in western Nebraska. Um, it was through a contract with the National Park Service and, and working with grad students and undergrads through a group called the Public Lands History Center here at CSU. Um, and it really opened my eyes to public history in ways that I had never really uh, considered public history. And so one of the things I'm considering doing is, is writing a, a shorter book, uh, maybe 150 pages or so, on the history of Scotts Bluff National Monument and my role in trying to tell that history in ways that hadn't been told before to an audience that doesn't always agree with the way that I'm trying to tell it. Um, and so I'm, I'm kind of intrigued by that. I'm not entirely sure how that will develop, but I, I think it's something that I'm interested in pursuing. Um, the other one is a, a, a much more, in some ways, um, well, daunting project, but um, also something I'm enthusiastic about, which is moving back into the 19th century. Um, it would be more Western than environmental, but it would be a, a way for me to kind of connect the Mexican War with the Indian Wars um, to try and bring in soldiers' experience, um, the ways in which Americans kind of made sense of these wars in the Western United States, the ways in which that either resembled Western expansion or imperialism, kind of tying it back to manifest destiny and ideas of American exceptionalism and kind of running through that hot mess, which is the middle of the 19th century in, in Western expansion. So I'm, I'm a little bit on the fence. I, I, like, I like both for different reasons, but, but quite frankly, I'm also trying to catch my breath. <laughs> the, the book took a long time to, to come to completion, and I'm just kind of enjoying right now thinking about it and kind of very, very much in the planning stages of, of my next my next project. So it's kind of an ice break. Yeah. Well, I mean, those sound like great projects. Uh, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. Legacies of Dust is out now. And Doug, we hope to have you back again soon. Thank you very much. Great to talk to you. Take care. <laughs>